Hey, Warners. Welcome to another episode of The Women Your Mother Warns You About, brought to you by Sales Gravy and Sales Gravy University. And if you are trying to up your game in the sales world, go check out salesgravy.university for all of the most awesome sales courses offered to you by 40 different sales thought leaders. There is nothing out there like it, including yours truly. I got some great courses on there too you should check out. But today let's talk about somebody really cool and dynamic joining the show. I happened to meet him at an event and is so like intrigued by what he's doing. There's a lot of goldfish involved. That's all I'm going to say right now before I bring him on the show. But today we've got Stan Phelps is our guest today. And um, little bio on Stan. He walks the walk. He stands out in the sea of sameness. I love that. By modeling his own differentiated experience, also known as DX. What I, I love that message. Differentiation isn't just about what you say. It's about what you do. And more importantly, how and why you do it. Stan leverages his collection of, I, got, I need to ask him about this, 5,000 plus case studies. I don't know when he has time to do this on customer employee and brand experience to engage audiences with informative learning-based experiences. He believes purposeful DX wins the hearts of employees, customers, and differentiation ultimately boosts loyalty, retention, referrals, and results. I couldn't agree more. Welcome to the show, Stan. Thanks, Gina. Great, great to be here. So excited to have you. I got to first tell you that one of the coolest things about you are your cookies. I know that's going to sound like a crazy way to bring you to the show, but talk about differentiation. You weren't just giving away goldfish shaped cookies of different colors in really cool promotional packaging. They were actually amazingly tasty. And yeah, I was my, like, yeah, my, my wife gets all the credit. Keep your hands off my wife's cookies. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, they are amazing. They were so good. Like you, you pick things up from someone's trade show table and you're like, eh, how good can right. it be? And that was amazing. So that definitely made you stand out. You had some really great stuff at your booth. But before we get started, just tell our audience a little bit about you, just a little bit of a background, where you came from, how you got here. Just kind of a quick synopsis of. Sure. Stuff. So I was born at a really young age. Love it. I love it. Born in the Northeast, raised in the Northeast, worked in marketing for a couple decades with big brands like Adidas and the PGA of America. I also worked on the agency side with groups called IMG and Synergy. And about, I'd say about 15 years ago, I started to write. That writing when I was number two at an agency was all about thought leadership and um, really trying to get our agency out there, but I really enjoyed the writing and more importantly, the speaking. Uh, and that writing, after all of those years in marketing, led to my first book, which was called The Purple Goldfish. And 11 years, I, I made, a little over 11 years ago, I made the jump to be full-time as an author and a speaker and now have a whole series of goldfish books. Yeah, so we got a lot to talk about here, Stan. So you start out with the Purple Goldfish book and how many books total have you written so far? So there's 18 total in the series. Okay, 18 total, starting with Purple. So I've right. got so many questions around this. First of all, why goldfish? Why goldfish? So. Gina, do you remember your very first pet? I'm not sure if it was a goldfish. It could have been. 
It could so have been. Me, it was either a goldfish or it was a dog. So for me, it was a goldfish when I was six years old. I won. His name was Oscar. I won him at a carnival. And Oscar was pretty small. It turns out that the average goldfish grows to be about three inches or about 10 centimeters okay. in length. Some grow to be smaller. Some grow to be larger. Um, and come to find out that the world's largest goldfish, which is not a carp or a koi, is nearly 20 inches. Wow. Right. So if average is the size of your thumb. 20 inches is the size of an average domesticated house cat. And that really That's intrigued crazy. me. That's crazy. That's it, crazy. It, Gina, it would be like walking out of your home or your office, right? And bumping into somebody who's three stories tall. So that intrigued me. Why do some goldfish only grow to be average or even less than average and some grow to be much bigger? Well, it turns out there's five reasons why a goldfish grows. Who knew? But it's the same five reasons that any organization also grows. And then there's that I could go into the reasons, but there's only one thing you out of the five that you actually have control over. And it's how you differentiate, not what you do, but how you do it and why you do it. And so the goldfish is just a metaphor. And then each of the colors in the series, Gina, have kind of symbolism for each of the books. And there's 11, 11 different colors in the series. Okay. So, okay. So you started with purple. Okay. Right. So I get the goldfish piece of it. Right. Now you start with the purple. Why purple? So purple is an ode to New Orleans. Okay. Um, and specifically its most famous event, which is Mardi Gras. So the three official colors of Mardi Gras are, per let's see your partying knowledge, Gina, purple, green, and gold. And so the, it, it, the reason why it's an ode to New Orleans, the concept that I write about comes from Louisiana. And it's this idea, it's a word, in fact, it's a word that Mark Twain in his autobiography said was worth traveling all the way to New Orleans to get. Wow. And it's a word called lanyap. Okay. How do you spell yeah. that? Yeah, L it, it's hard to spell. <laughs> okay. uh, L-A-G-N-I-A-P-E. Okay. Phonetically, Gina, it would be L-A-N-Y-A-P, lanyap. Okay. And it's Creole, so it's French, combination of French and Spanish. It literally means the gift or to give more. And so the idea is instead of just doing the transaction that the business does a little something extra to honor the relationship. And so it's a commonplace thing if you're down in New Orleans that a business might do a little something that gets added as part of the experience. I love that. So, yeah. So that became the, my background was in marketing I thought the sun rose and set on the customer and that marketing was more about telling what telling people what your brand is as opposed to catering to the customers you already had and doing something that gives them a reason to talk about their experience. I love that. I love that. 
So I love story. I love people's story and their right. night moments. They're the things that jazz them up to do what they're doing. Uh, you, you see, I threw jazz in there for New Orleans. But if we look at that first book and your decision to like, jump and leap and like do this like leave that agency world and then write this first book what triggered that what motivated that how did that happen for you to leap out i'm going to write a book and i'm going to write a book about goldfish so i'd spent a year i and still the name of my company i had a blog that was called nine inch marketing and i think we talked about this nine inches the distance between the stem of your brain and the top of your heart And and I tell people, if the goal of marketing is to win the hearts of your customers, right, then this becomes the long, longest and hardest nine inches. I don't remember you saying that when you first told me, but that's. Yes. So, (laughs) so, So for a year, I wrote about all different facets of marketing. And I kept coming back to this concept of Lanyap. But Gina, it's solidified for me when I had what I call my moment of truth. And my moment of truth happened in New York City. I'm at one of these like rooftop bars in Manhattan, like a really cool place. I'm like at the top of this rooftop bar and um, it's crowded. I'm there with a colleague. We're waiting for some people to show up and we're gonna go to a networking event, right? I was kind of in business development and sales. And so we're waiting for people to show up and it's a crowded bar. And I tell people I'm enjoying an $18 beer, if it's possible to enjoy an $18 beer. And I'll never forget it. There was this older guy sitting right across from my colleague, Brad and I, and Gina, he was on his own by himself. And every couple of minutes, I could see him scan the entire bar. So it became obvious to me he was also waiting for someone to show up. And a half an hour goes by and no one shows up for this guy. And so I start feeling bad for him and I lean in, I go, just to start a conversation, I go, do you know we spend 10% of our life waiting? Have you ever heard that stat? No, I have not. So as I told this guy, I go, I know it's true because I once read it on the internet. So we started talking (laughs) about the etiquette right? The etiquette of waiting. And more importantly, I said something about that my dad had taught me like Vince Lombardi time. Like you have, if you're not early, you're late, right? Oh God. I had the same dad. Yeah. Probably the same generation. And yep. this guy, I swear to God, he looked me in the eye kind of strange. And I'm like, what? He goes, he looked me in the eye, Gene. He goes on time. He said, no one in life is ever on time. And I was perplexed. I go, wait a second. I go, I've been on time before. I go, not often, but I've been on time. And he doubled down. He stuck his finger in my face and he gave me the Dikembe finger wave. And he went, no. He said, in fact, he said, on time is a myth. He said, people in life, he said, are either early or they're late. He said, no one is ever exactly on time okay. and i'll never forget it kind of i thought it was kind of odd and i went home that night i'm taking the train home to connecticut where i live and i thought to myself i go god i go that same reasoning applies to the customers that we serve each and every day and my reasoning my thought was the same thing applies like 
no one ever just meets the expectation of a customer, right? Yeah. If we're being honest, you either exceed their expectations or you fall short. Yeah. And so given the choice of either doing less or doing more, literally the next day I started, I called it the Purple Goldfish Project, and I started to search for case studies. I wanted companies that purposefully did little things to go above and beyond expectations, right? To go above and beyond just the transaction to show that they cared about the relationship. And I crowdsourced it and the goal was to get a thousand and one examples. And you got how many? For that one, I now have like 1100 for that one book. Yeah, Uh, it took me 27 months I tell people you should never, I should never have, I should have come up with 501. That would have been impressive, Gina. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. I, I, I tell people I should have taken advice that someone gave me once about cross-country skiing. Have you ever done cross-country skiing? No, and it won't it's, happen. And it won't happen. I tell you, it's really difficult. And this is the advice someone gave me. They said, Stan, if you ever decide to do cross-country skiing, this was the advice they said, Start with a small country. So I I should have said 500. I don't know why I did 1,001. And it took me a little over two years. And that, looking across hundreds of examples, when I crowdsourced it, I started to see the patterns of how you could do it. And this is the 2.0 version, but there's 10 different ways that you can create a purple goldfish. Wow. And five, five are in a category that I call value and five are in a category that I call maintenance. So how do you do things to add value, right? And maintenance is more about being easier to work with. Mm-hmm. And you want to be seen as someone who provides high value and is low maintenance. 100%. Are there any stories that well, you had a thousand and one stories, but what is one story that like comes top of mind of that thousand and one stories? Sure, sure. So like the double tree chocolate chip cookie came uh, up so many times in the project. Yes. They've given away a half a billion chocolate wow. chip cookies. It used to be that luxury hotels would do stuff for like their top guests. And Double Tree said, everyone's a top level guest to us. Love it. And they started it back in the 1980s and it's just grown. I love that one, but I like also smaller. So like one of my favorite ones, Gina, is from a company in St. Paul, Minnesota called Izzy's Ice Cream. And Izzy's, you think about sampling as something that you typically do for like a prospective customer, right? To bring them in. But here's the thing, from a sales point of view, For the customers that you already have of 100% of what you can do for them, the average customer, people that are already doing business with you, on average, know less than 30% of your overall capabilities. So sampling is this idea, how do you give them an additional little taste? And I love this at this ice cream shop, Izzy's, every time you ordered a full scoop of ice cream, they would let you pick a second flavor for free. And they give you this little mini scoop on top that was called the Izzy. It was just brilliant. 
Wow. Right? Yeah. How do you give your customers, right? Again, the ones that are already doing business with you, how do you give them a little taste of what else you can do if on average they only know less than a third of your capabilities? Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I love it. Yeah. There's tons of great stories. Now, did you put all a thousand and one stories in that book? (laughs) Oh, no. There's probably about a hundred case studies in there. Yeah. And the first part of the book is why is it important to do this? The middle part of the book is the 10 different types. And probably each of those chapters has about eight to 10 examples. And then the last part of the book is like step one, step two, step three, to how do you actually create your own purple goldfish? And and so I did the first, to your point, I only thought it was going to be one book. And here was the thing that I saw was that the companies that really got it, Gina, didn't put their customers first. Who do you think they put first? Themselves? Oh, no, their employees. Yeah, yeah, they put, they looked, like, yeah, their employees, because here's the thing, you can't have happy customers unless you have happy, engaged team members. Amen, uh, amen, brother. Yeah, so I'm looking behind me if I had a copy of Green, so, I ended up, I didn't learn my lesson. I did another thousand examples <laughs> um, and and did the same thing. And it was the same thing. That one was called the green goldfish. And the green was the idea beyond dollars, right? Beyond compensation. What are the little things that you can do to reinforce your culture and to drive engagement? And so same type of thing, look through hun- hundreds of examples and for that book, there's 15 different ways that you can go beyond dollars to drive engagement. Okay, so now I got it. This is the way I'm running comedy. You repeat things, right? So the first time went so well when I asked you for a story. Now I need another story from Green, one of your best engagement stories. I, I'm super passionate about this, taking care of your employees first and they right. will deliver. And if you don't give them a good experience Forget, Forget it. about it. Is there a story that stands out specifically from that, from your case well, studies? Well, it turns out there's 75 different drivers of engagement. The number one, though, the number one from the research is the extent to which your employees believe that their senior leaders have a sincere interest mm. in their well-being. Yeah. I'm going to repeat that. The extent to which <laughs> employees believe that their leaders have a sincere interest in their well-being. And so if you think about it, one of the one of the 15 types is transparency. Right? How do you create an environment where people understand why decisions are being made and ideally they're made in the best interest of the team. Right? So the the idea of trying to keep things open by default because if people don't have the information, they tend to make up their own stories. I was just gonna say the assumptions kick in. Right. Right. I, I, and no I, one ever gets the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and especially if you're like, I like what you're saying, we're doing this for in the best interest, but if you're not communicating mm-hmm. the plan, the goal, right. what's in it for the employee, all they can do is make assumptions because you gave them nothing else to go off of. Right. So the story I love that illustrates this, I used to live in Amsterdam 
And in Amsterdam. Oh, I think we talked about that because we talked about improv in Amsterdam. I used to at Boom Chicago. Yeah. yeah. I used to live in a canal house. And in the canal house, it's really interesting. The Dutch are interesting. They almost none of them have curtains. You can literally look right in to someone's house. And so it's not my story. Uh, a guy named Vineet Nayar was visiting a friend and he asked his friend, he said, why do you not have curtains? And, the, and if you've ever been to Amsterdam before, the sun doesn't shine all that much there. And so the guy's like, we want to be able to let that natural light into the house. And then he said, also the kind of olive green waters outside and the canals are beautiful and they want to be able to look out and see at the canals. And then the guy who owned the canal house said something really interesting, Gina. He goes, and it was really telling, he goes, it also forces us to keep our house clean, right? And there's a great- I, I, thought, I thought you were going to say it forces us to keep our clothes on, but okay. <laughs> okay. But sometimes, this is a great saying, sunlight is the best disinfectant. Okay. And, and, and so creating a transparent environment. So there's a lot of great examples in the book of how companies do that. That's one of the ways onboarding I found to be just a critical thing in the beginning of somebody's tenure in a company. Critical. People make a decision very early on in their tenure, short-term or long-term. Mm -hmm. And so how you manage somebody into the organization is absolutely key. That's really interesting. So based on some of your work, <laughs> is there studies that show that someone joins your company and because of the onboarding process, they make a decision early on if they're going to be there for a long time or a short time? Short term, long term or prison term. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, yeah, that yeah. that's absolutely key. People make that decision and it's really expensive. Attrition is really expensive for companies. Not only are you losing the investment that you had you're in to get somebody on board, you're lo use, losing that knowledge, that 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 institutional knowledge that they have. It's just yeah. it's a killer for companies. Yeah. And I, I'm sure you're familiar with some of Zappos's approach with onboarding, right? There's that's the first yeah. thing that comes to mind. In, in fact, I visited them and Tony, the late it's very sad Tony, now, the late yeah. Tony Shea gave me gave me a testimonial for the book. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, they totally get it. They probably showed up in the book three or three or four yeah. examples, but they yeah. totally get it. The just to finish off on the first three, and then I didn't all right, I did the second one and I'm like, well, it's got to be a trilogy, right? Purple, <laughs> green, and gold. Lord of the Rings fan. It's got to be a trilogy <laughs> or, or Star Wars, right? And what I realized too, what was interesting is I used to think, Gina, you treat all of your customers and all of your employees the same, right? Everyone should get the same little extra, right? Or special treatment. And I, I think that's, a, I think that's, I think I got that wrong. And, mm -hmm. and the reason being is that when you study organizations, typically your top 20% of customers drive 80% of your profitability. Your top 20% of your employees, if we're being honest, probably drive 80% of the value in an organization. Your top 20% of salespeople, guess what do they generate? 80% of your revenue. 80% of your revenue. So here's the thing, the, the last one was about 
the golden goldfish. It's kind of like the golden goose type of thing. But the idea of little things that you do for your best customers and your best employees. And I'm not a big fan of the 80-20 principle. The guy who kind of coined that came up with his own law, Gina, and he called it the law of the vital few and the trivial many. Ooh, and now I need to know that. What is that law? It's the guy who coined the 80-20 principles, a guy named Joe, American named Joseph Duran. Pareto, who did a little bit of the work to uncover these ratios, was from Italy. But Duran worked with the government right before World War II. And he was sent, it's interesting time because we're in a similar time right now. In 1939, we were sending arms and goods to the UK to help them fight in the war before we jumped in. And similar to what we're doing now in the Ukraine and probably going to start doing for for Israel. And here's the thing. Duran was studying problems with the shipments. And what he found was 80% of the problems were attributed to just 20% of the causes. And that's when he stumbled upon Pareto's work from literally 30 years earlier. And he's the one that created the law of the vital few and the trivial many. So the the big takeaway from that book is you have to understand who is your vital few. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just reflecting on that because I don't know if companies spend a lot of time thinking about that. No. So, so yeah, so that was the trilogy. I thought maybe I was done. And then I started to partner with people in areas that I wasn't an expert in. Smart. Um, so blue was the fourth color. That was about technology and data um, and AI and analytics. That was the blue one. There's a story behind that. Red was about purpose. Uh, pink, which I presented when we were together in Raleigh is about embracing kind of weirdness and weakness to stand out and differentiate yourself. Yellow was about happiness. That was the sixth color. The seventh color was about working across the generations, the gray goldfish. Hmm. Number eight was about, was diamond, which is about sales and client management and excelling under pressure in business. Yeah. Silver was about communication and presentation skills. So they kind of run the gamut, all all of the colors. I, I love it. So I, I want I know our original plan was to talk about diamond, but I told you we might go off the rails in a different direction. But I wanted to I truly wanted to understand this whole fish goldfish tank scenario. How many more colors you gotta go? Because there's all kinds of colors. You gonna keep going? Yeah, it's a great question. So last year, I came out with the black goldfish. And have you ever seen like a a young kid play with paint and eventually Mm -hmm. all of the colors get mixed together? Yeah. You either get a really dirty brown, but ideally, if you put all of the colors together, what color you get? Okay. Black. And so last year, I came out with black, which was the 11th color one louder, 11. And that was kind of a little bit of the progression of the entire series. 
And right now, I other than going back and doing like a 2.0 of some of the books, yeah. I'm not doing any additional colors for the foreseeable future. For now. You never uh, know. You never know. You never know. But I'm more, I've started a thing called the Goldfish Tank, which is a unique program where I work with organizations to come in and not just do a keynote and not just do a workshop, but actually provide an environment of applied learning. And what's really cool is people at the end of that learning have to come in and actually pitch an idea that they can use in their business. Mm. And so my next decade, I just hit the 10 year mark last year, my next decade as an author and as a speaker wants to be more focused on less on entertaining and insight and more about impact. Love it. I love it. I do want to go back to diamonds because yeah. I read the small book that you sent me on diamond and right. I was super intrigued by it because I love those. I love by those the way, books. if you put a little water on it, you get the big one. Now that's not going to work. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like a goldfish comes out. No, I, I'm a big fan of like the mini book, right? Because I love that. Honest, people don't read books, but they will read. I like love that. I'm going to borrow that idea from you. I told you, so I'm excited about that. The diamond one. Let's talk a little bit about that before we wrap up, because sure. you reference the golden rule and the platinum rule, and then there's the diamond rule. So yeah. I talk a lot about obviously the platinum rule and because this goes hand in hand with improv in putting, making it about others, making people look to you and feel good. And I'm not going to step away from that necessarily, but the diamond rule got me thinking, but it also goes very hand in hand with emotional intelligence. So, so let's talk a little bit about the diamond. Sure. So you know what a diamond is, right? It is other material. I just know diamonds look good on my fingers. Well, it's one of the most valuable things on earth, right? And not because they're plentiful, it's because they're scarce, uh-huh. right? So a diamond is simply a piece of coal that did well under pressure. And so we talk about in the book as a metaphor, this idea of the 4.0 version of business is acting in accordance to what we call the diamond rule. Now, you mentioned the golden rule and the platinum rule. What I didn't realize, Gina, there's something that actually predates the golden rule. No, I don't know if I knew that. It's the silver rule. Oh, the silver rule. Yeah, I did read that. Okay. Yeah, and the silver rule dates all the way back to the time of confusion. Mm -hmm. And he wrote about it in the book Analex. And ideally, the silver rule is simply this. Do no harm. Like, if you don't want bad stuff done to you, don't do bad stuff to other people. Yeah, yeah. And you think, well, that's pretty basic, right? One of the most valuable companies in the world is Google. For their first 20 years, do you know what their corporate motto was? Was it do no harm? Do no evil. Oh, do no evil, because I'm like, it sounds familiar. And to your point, when you become a, doc- a doctor, you take the Hippocratic Oath. And what's the Hippocratic Oath? Do no harm, right? So you think, it, but it's it's a basic, it's a starting point, but it doesn't quite, quite tell you what to do. It just tells you what not to do. Yeah, okay. The 2.0, the 2.0 is the golden rule. 
And every culture, every religion, they all have a version of the golden rule, right? Treat others the way that you would like to get treated. Right. Right. And it's a great rule for like teaching children, but it's more internal, right? It's based on what you would want. Right. And then there's a huge assumption that what you would want is what your customer or your prospect would want. And here's the thing. We know this from research and sales, right? People convert about one out of every five opportunities. So 20%, right? And people lose on average about 25% of their customers each year. Mm, Wow. Right? And here's the thing. There are four main behavioral styles. So if I treat you the way that I like to get treated, there's about a 25% chance that we might actually connect, right? And so the golden rule is a bad rule in business and in sales, right? You mentioned the platinum rule, right? The platinum rule is much more grounded in more outward and grounded in empathy. And it simply flips the golden rule. It goes, let me find out what Gina would like and how she would like to get treated. And then what do I do? I treat her that way, right? And so it's much more focused on the other, which is great. But here's the thing. If I'm 100% focused on Gina, who am I neglecting? Yeah, and you. I'm neglecting myself, right? Yeah, yeah. And so in the great words of Mike Tyson, right? It, it may be a great plan, but as Tyson it. says, yeah, everyone's it. got a plan. Yeah they get punched in the mouth. And so if I'm 100% focused on the other person, but then I feel slighted and I get triggered, right? I got to kind of get thrown out the window. So the diamond rule just kind of, it combines both elements of the golden rule and the platinum rule. And the first part of the diamond rule is managing yourself, right? Understanding yourself and managing yourself so you can then focus on the needs of whoever you're working with. And this is where you play the game at the high level, reduce the pressure that they feel Mm. in order to manage that relationship. Yeah. And so it's kind of like playing the game. If we think about business as a game and it is, there's, it's not a life and death game, but it's a game, right? And how do we keep score? with how we make money and how we convert. And we certainly keep score and play retention. It's playing the game at, if I think about it at the highest level. And it first involves first knowing yourself, right? Knowing yourself and knowing your specific style that you have. Yeah. And then understanding how to, understand the styles of those that you're dealing with in order to not do things differently, but kind of see things a little quicker and serve things up in a way that cater to the needs of your client or prospect. Yeah. I love it. I love it so much. We talk about this a lot about flexing to the style of others. This is very much about emotional intelligence and the book that I've got coming out next year on improvised intelligence. Like this goes so hand in hand. I'm curious on the diamond rule. Is this your rule? 
Did you make up this rule? So, yeah, I worked with my co-authors. So Travis Carson and Tony Cooper, they they have this this market force style indicator. That's right. And so there's four different styles. So there's an assessment that comes with the book. Those guys had done a couple hundred thousand of these assessments. They were really the experts. I just saw it as the next level from platinum. And we talked about this idea of a progression and a 4.0 and seeing it more like diamond because these are not personality styles, they're behavioral styles that are specific to how you do and where you go under pressure, right? We all do really well when things are humming along great. It's when we get triggered and we go to our our default, right? When we feel pressure. Yeah, I think that's really important. I've done those behavioral assessments in the past, and I think we often forget about them because there's all kinds of personality assessments that that we take right. and people take. But your, your exact point, when we're under pressure, what happens and being able to know like what your triggers are, like I know my triggers. I actually just had this conversation with my husband because something triggered me yesterday and we usually, we never fight, but there was a, a pressure point moment right. where I had to come back and like explain the pressure to him. But in the moment I couldn't explain it. Mm-hmm. And how I came back to explain this is like when I'm in that kind of moment, I actually my behavior might not be the best behavior, but at the same time, I know I'm having a behavior and I'm like, I need to walk away from everybody until I until I resolve because I don't know why I'm reacting the way I'm reacting or feeling the way I'm feeling. And I think to your point, self-awareness, I'm like, okay, something doesn't feel right here. Let me step away. I got to go figure it out before I should interact with other humans. Right. Like step one. Have you ever heard this quote? It's by a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl. Yeah. So Frankl was an Austrian neuroscientist. He was also a Holocaust mm-hmm. survivor. He survived yeah. not one, but three different camps. It's crazy. And Frankl said, he said, between stimulus and response, he said, there is space. And he said, in that space is our power to choose how we respond. Right. And he said, in our response lies both our growth and our freedom. That's so powerful. And and so you do the right thing. Absolutely. When you feel that stimulus, you feel yourself getting triggered. The best thing you can do is try to create a little bit of space to be self-aware. Yeah. And not immediately go to your default. Now, I know your last episode was about a swan. (laughs) I'll I'll tell you really quickly. So the four behavioral styles, we have animals associated with each of the four. Oh, I love it. So the first animal is a rhino. So what do rhinos do when they're under pressure, Gina? They charge. They charge, right? Yeah. Yeah. Their style is to go right into the pressure, right? Yeah. And... Their mantra is that they want to be able to control the situation. So we call that style a control. Mm-hmm. The second one, and I'm totally this second style, the, the animal we have for that one is a deer. 
So Gina, what does a deer do when they get kind of they freeze? They freeze, but then what do they do? And hopefully not into your car. And they run. Yeah, they run. <laughs> right. Their their response is to like migrate to get yeah. away as opposed to charging right into right, it. Right. 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 They're gonna try to go somewhere where the pressure get it get away far away as possible. Birds have that as a response. Even whales do. Because when the condition changes, they'll literally travel thousands of miles to go where it's a better environment. Interesting. Right. The third animal, so so for that style of the deer, we call them an influence, right? They want to be they want to feel like they can influence and live in the moment. And when they feel constrained, right, they're like, get me the hell out of town. The third type style is what the animal we have is the porcupine. So what does a porcupine do, Gina, when they feel pressure? Hurts you. <laughs> I don't well, know. <laughs> kind of a turtle does turtles the same way. What do they do? They just oh, kind they, of, they go into their shell. Yeah, they go into yeah. their shell. And in the case of the porcupine, they put the quills up, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and they try to ride it out. They don't go anywhere. Yeah. But they try to ride it out until the danger or the pressure subsides. Mm -hmm. And we call that style is called a power. Yeah. Those people like to just get shit done. They love like a to-do list. They're all about the short term, right? They're happy when they're busy, right? They don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to change things. The the fourth style is the, the animal there is the bear. So what happens when the environment starts to change and like a bear's food supply starts to get low, what do they do, Gina? They start roaming around looking. Well, <laughs> or they, what? they find a cave. And what oh, do they do? Oh, yeah, they hibernate. They hibernate. Yeah. Right? And so that's their survival strategy, right? They literally go to sleep for months at a time and like shut down. And so we, the bear, that style is what we call an authority. And authorities kind of live in the past. They're all about making things better, but they want to have all of the information before they make a decision. And in the absence of not having, not feeling like they're an authority, what do they do, Gina? They don't make any decisions, right? (laughs) Yeah. So each of the styles have kind of different needs, right? And it's understanding somebody's style allows you to serve things up in a way that they're going to best be able to receive them. Yeah. And it, and it's less about you and your style other than you need to minimize, right? And can be in control of yourself, which allows you to focus on the other person. I love it. I love it. And that's all in that, that, that framework that you mentioned. Yeah. It's called the market forced market force style indicator. Right. Okay. So you, you, you're either a control, an influence, a power, or an authority. Okay. Well, I think I'm right there with you. I think, well, I think I've... most people that are in sales and, and business development tend to be more influences. Yeah. They live in the moment. They're great relationship builders. They're great in, the, in a room. Right. Yeah. I could definitely see you. <laughs> people that work in marketing that tend to be focused on more of a plan and like kind of having control, right? 
they tend to be more of the controls, Mm -hmm. right? People that are in operations that kind of keep things going and keep the trains on time. They tend to be more like that porcupine, that power, right? Short-term focus. And then people that are in finance and HR and admin tend to be, and they're critical. They tend to be the authorities, Mm -hmm. right? They're all about the past and improving things rather than doing stuff that's new. Yeah. Okay. What would a police officer be? I'm sure <laughs> you could look at each of the jobs and I, and I know you'll, you, you'll have to have them take the test. I know. I, know. I, was just, I can guess, but I'm, I'm not that positive. Um, Stan, uh, this has been so awesome having you here today. And this was such a great learning. And I know we talked about how, to, how does all of this relate back to sales? I think anybody listening to this in sales and business, all of these things matter. How you take care of your customers, how you're going to treat them, how you're going to take care of yourself. What are you doing with your employees to keep them engaged? All of this, all of these fish come together in in the fish tank and is important because business is a game and we need to keep the game going. How can people reach out to you, Stan, and work with you, get more fish in their fish tank? What's the best way to, <laughs> to work with you? Yeah, the best, best place is my home base would be my website. So stanphelps.com. Okay. I also spend a lot of time on LinkedIn. So yes, reach out do. and connect with me on LinkedIn. Awesome. And your website's awesome, by the way. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Really nice job on that. But you're a marketing guy. It should be. I should eat my own dog food, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you once again for being here. My my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. All I'm right, Warners. Uh, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Women Your Mother Warned You About, brought to you by Sales Gravy and Sales Gravy University. Go check that out for almost 300 live and on-demand courses available for you to check out right now. For more about this show, go to womenyourmotherwarnedyouabout.com. And uh, you can also watch this episode now on YouTube. So go check that out and we'll see you next time.